Welcome to episode one of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Real crimes, real trial lawyers. I'm your host, Shelley Levesay, along with my special guest, David McKenzie, and we will start talking about the Julius Jones case. We will get into behind the scenes stories of what happens both inside and outside the courtroom and what led to the verdict and execution date of November 18th of this year. David was the lead trial counsel for Julius, along with Malcolm Savage and Robin McPhail. David, how are you? I'm well, thank you for having me. Now, Mr. Jones' case, is he your only client that's ended up on death row? He is, yeah. And has that haunted you? It has, yeah. Nobody wants to uh, uh, lose any case, but uh, to lose one that somebody is going to have their life taken by the government, it certainly haunts me. I worry about it constantly. And do you think we'd be talking about Julius Jones if he'd seen life? No, no. He, in a weird kind of twisted way, uh, his only chance of getting out is the fact that he received the death penalty because it's garnered nationwide attention and apparently the Pardon and Parole Board is going to recommend to the governor that they commute his sentence to, to, uh, to life and uh, with some sort of recommendation that he gets out. If he would receive life without parole or been acquitted, uh, he had other legal entanglements that would have gotten him a life sentence. The uh, other carjacking and the um, issues that he had in Cleveland County also carried the potential of life. So in a weird kind of way, uh, sentence, his sentence of death has given him the only option he would have ever had of getting uh, back on the streets. Wow, well that's an unusual situation. And we will talk more about his lengthy criminal history. But I want to talk for a minute about Paul Howell, the victim of his murder. On July 28, 1999, he and his children and his sisters were going back to school shopping and out for ice cream. And unbeknownst to him, when they left Brahms and were driving home, they were being followed by a cutlass. When he got to the driveway, a young black male wearing a red bandana, a black stocking cap, and a white t-shirt walked up to him, put a gun to his head, and demanded his keys. And then he shot him in the head. His sister witnessed this and hustled the children into the house, but as they ran that way, they heard another gunshot, which later was found on the floorboard of the Suburban. Just prior to the shooting and carjacking witnesses' place, Christopher Jordan and Julius Jones driving around looking for a vehicle to steal, in particular, a Suburban. And witnesses saw them circle in and out of the Brahms parking lot and follow him home. Now, after murdering Mr. Powell, Hal, Julius Jones and Christopher Jordan went to see Liddell King, known as Day-Day, to sell that vehicle. King later told police that Jones was wearing a white t-shirt, a black stocking cap, a red bandana, and was driving the Suburban. Two days later, police found that Suburban at a convenience store on the south side. Detectives located another witness, Kermit Lottie, who advised that Liddell King... And another man, who he later realized was Julius Jones, tried to sell him that Suburban. But he declined because he didn't want a car with a body attached to it. David, is that an accurate accounting of the crime? <laughs> That's the government's theory of prosecution. I certainly cannot agree that uh, uh, 
Julius was involved in it. Well, I want to summarize a little bit of other evidence, and then we'll start getting into the documentaries and what's brought this to nationwide attention. But after police find these witnesses, they get a search warrant for Julius's home, where he lived with his parents. And isn't it true in that search, they located a 25 caliber handgun wrapped in a red bandana hidden in the attic above Julius's closet. That's accurate, yes. They also found ammunition in the magazine from the 25 caliber gun hidden in a wall-mounted door chime housing. That's correct. And ballistics confirmed that was the murder weapon, right? Undisputed, yes. And they also confirmed that the bullet found inside the Suburban matched the ammunition found in the house. Is that also right? Also undisputed, yes. Okay, sounds like there was a lot of evidence pointing towards Mr. Jones. Yeah, it looked pretty, uh, pretty dire for him when they uh, began this prosecution. Well, let's get some introductory information from you. When did you become an attorney? I was sworn to the bar, sworn into the bar on uh, October 5th, 1988. And at the time of this crime, where were you working? I was in private practice in Oklahoma City doing criminal defense. And were you aware of this crime? I saw it on television and it, uh, I kind of noticed it because my former law partner, John Coyle, or uh, how he's sometimes known as J.W. Coyle III, was originally uh, contacted by the Jones family to represent Julius. And at some point you joined the Public Defender's Office, is that correct? I did. On February 1st, 2000, I joined the Public Defender's Office. And approximately when did you get assigned to Julius's case? It wasn't long after that. Uh, it was certainly before the summer of 2000. And the reason I say that, because I don't really have an independent recollection of it, is in preparation for talking to you today, I've looked through the dockets and the docket sheets, and uh, my name starts beginning to show up on pleadings around July of that year, so I would have been on the case probably a month or so before that. So that's a, a very rough approximation. Okay, and did you have capital experience? No. Did you have murder case experience? Certainly. And how many murder cases would you say you had tried at that point? I, I would say roughly around 10, um, no more than that, uh, and that's just a rough guess. Would you agree that many defense lawyers, unless they work for the public defender's office, probably don't even try a murder case? Oh, I certainly would agree with that. Most people accused of murder don't have the finances to pay a private attorney to handle the murder case. So trying 10 is pretty fair amount of murder cases to have tried. I did, yeah, it, it is, and I, uh, I did a lot of stuff uh, pro bono um, just to get trial experience and have been very successful with murder cases until this case. And who else was on your team? Uh, my best friend in the world, Malcolm Savage, and Robin McPhail, who was a young public defender in Oklahoma County. And Mr. Savage and you, had you tried cases together before that? We had. We had tried several cases. Uh, in fact, uh, murder, we tried a murder case, which we were successful on, several drug cases we were successful on. This is the only conviction we got out of 10 or 12 murder, out of 10 or 12 uh, jury trials. And Mr. Savage, how long had he been an attorney at that time? Um, I think Malcolm had been an attorney for 
four or five years, uh, and had worked uh, his entire career to that point uh, in the public defender's office, but not long after that was appointed uh, to the bench in Oklahoma County as a district judge by Brad Henry. And what about Ms. McPhail? I think at the time of the homicide that she was a law student at the University of Tulsa. And um, at the time she was assigned to the case, she uh, was in the process of taking the bar, had passed the bar, and was waiting to be sworn in. So I think she was on the case before she actually uh, was called to the bar and took the oath. Well, that's pretty surprising that a brand new lawyer would be assigned to the most serious case we have under the law, at least as far as criminal cases go. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a little bit unusual, uh, but the problem with this case was that uh, while Malcolm and I had a pretty extensive trial experience, we didn't have the experience uh, that comes with the death penalty case. And the death penalty case is different in the sense that the uh, punishment phase, the aggravating factors as opposed to mitigating factors, standards, are highly technical, and you really kind of have to know what you're doing. Ms. McPhail, uh, according to Mr. Rabbits, uh, who was the chief public defender at the time, and I think is still the chief public defender, um, told me that she had worked for the Oklahoma Indigent Defense System in their capital division as an intern and knew the ins and outs of the second stage of a death penalty trial, meaning your client's been convicted, let's save their life. Was there a capital division at the public defender's office? There was. Uh, I believe at that time there were two lawyers assigned to it, Kathy Hammerston, who had uh, been a longtime public defender and a longtime death penalty trial lawyer, and a lawyer by the name of Tamara Spradlin, who was a younger lawyer, but uh, just incredibly smart, book smart, and, and incredibly good writer, an incredibly good writer. And a very talented trial lawyer uh, and had had a lot of success in the uh, death penalty arena. And do you have any idea why one of them wasn't helping Miss McPhail with stage two? I don't have a clue. Just seems like that's a pretty big risk to take by putting a brand new lawyer uh, when someone's facing the death penalty, not to take anything away from Miss McPhail, but I know after 10 years of practice, I learn new things every day. And looking back on it, I certainly realized what I didn't know in my first couple of years of practice. Sure. And I think we, it's why they call it the practice of law, because we learn something new every day. Um, in Robin's defense, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the second stage part of a death penalty case has to do with motion practice and, and objecting to uh, aggravating factors and and uh, witness statements with regard to um, victim's impact and those sort of things. And uh, in reading everything you've given me in preparation for talking today, all the opinions, nobody has ever raised that there was a deficiency in the motion practice. And that was uh, Robin's part of this case, the second stage. There were some issues with it, but uh, even given her uh, lack of experience, I'm going to say she did a damn good job on at least the out-of-court part of the second stage with, with a few reservations, but 
she did a very good job. Nobody's ever raised the fact that uh, impro uh, motions were not filed that needed to be filed. Okay, I think we'll spend the rest of this episode and probably the next one by talking about ABC's documentary, The Last Defense, and then later 2020 ran a shortened version by the same name. How would you describe that documentary? False. Um, it's disingenuous. It uh, is misleading. It doesn't uh, have anything to do with what we had to face in the real trial. It leaves out facts. It uh, sometimes just uh, contains out-and-out -out lies. Um, it's like Grimm's fairy tales with the emphasis on Grimm. It, uh, if it were a book, it would be in the fiction section. If it were a movie, it would be only based upon a true story. It does a lot more harm than good. And my concern when I saw the first three-part uh, episodes, uh, uh, The Last Defense, was that, oh, here we go, because somebody that's read the transcript is going to uh, really tear this up and hurt Julius. And I'll be damned if that didn't come pretty quickly with uh, David Prater and General Hunter, General Mike Hunter, uh, the former Attorney General of the State of Oklahoma, attacking uh, this show because it didn't tell the whole truth and was deceptive in a lot of different ways. Well, and from my reading of the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals opinion, uh, some of the Tenth Circuit and snippets of the transcript, it appears that there are many things that are left out of the documentary. And one thing in particular is the Arizona Federal Public Defenders state several times that there's all this evidence pointing away from Julius. Um, that seems to be a disingenuous statement. What do you think? It's like most of this. It's a half-truth. Um, I, <laughs> it's, you know, as a, as a practicing trial lawyer, you know the difference between actual innocence and being able to create a reasonable doubt. Um, it's, it's a mixed bag. It, um, again, it doesn't attack the issues that we had to attack or defend in the um, bright spotlight of the courtroom where there's no place to hide. There's some, there's some things out there that you might consider um, to be actual innocence, but when you start looking at them, it's more of creating a reasonable doubt. And, and they want to talk about uh, the family uh, alibi, which we'll get into later. I'm sure that is one of those things. That's the one that they seem to hang their hat on, which is the most implausible and ridiculous uh, allegation they make. And, I can assure you, if, if we would have put that on, we probably would have uh, problems with the Oklahoma Bar Association, and you and I would be sitting here talking about how I fucked up this case by putting on the implausible family alibi. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, but that's what you buy into when you do death penalty cases. Um, they are going to look at every move you make and uh, criticize you, and that's I signed up for it, so I, I'm good with it. But I'm not good with it, to, with it to the extent that they lie and tell half-truths, and that's 
the problem with both of these documentaries. Well, and one thing that's not even particularly pertinent to the case, but when I looked him up, they stated that he was a scholar athlete and, you know, was just this good kid and, and fell into the bad crowd and, you know, got framed by these people, but that's not actually even true. He wasn't an athlete at the University of Oklahoma, and he had less than a 1.0 GPA. Isn't that correct? It's, it's one of those that uh, uh, the statement that you attributed to them, uh, if I called it a half-truth, that would be giving it too much credit. Um, Julius was a good kid at some point. Julius was a state championship basketball player, football player, and baseball player. Julius was in the top 10% of his class at John Marshall University. Julius received a President's Scholarship, which is the highest scholarship that the University of Oklahoma has to offer academically. Um, he was never going to play athletics at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, he never received any offer like that. He certainly could have walked on, but he did not. So he was a smart kid, but by the time he was 19, in the time of this murder, he had three felony convictions. He had three felony convictions and uh, two other felonies pending in Cleveland County, which he could have received life for. So my reading of the court records indicates that he had a conviction for making a false statement on an Oklahoma ID application, a false declaration of ownership in pawn, which for our listeners means basically you take a stolen item and to a pawn shop and say you own it and then sell it to get money, and then knowingly concealing stolen property, along with another case of larceny of merchandise from a retailer or felony shoplifting, which means it had to be over a certain amount. I, I think one of those may have been a juvenile adjudication. It's not actually a felony conviction, but uh, it's undisputed that Julius Jones, at the time that he went to trial on the allegation of that he murdered Mr. Howe, possessed a firearm uh, while being a convicted felon and, and conspired with Christopher Jordan, was a three-time convicted felon, uh, which uh, puts him in the Oklahoma habitual criminal range of anything he does, it's a felony. Most things he does, it's a felony. It's 20 to life. And uh, not to mention just those in Cleveland County. Now, later these were dismissed after he received the death penalty, but he had another pending shoplifting, an unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, or stealing another car, um, and possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and obstruction of an officer. I mean, so it seems that this was an M.O. for him to go around and carjack people with a gun. Well, um, Tough question. The, uh, one of these carjackings that he was accused of, he eventually pleaded guilty to, and that was the hideaway pizza incident, which occurred a month or a week before Mr. Howe was killed. Um, that uh, there was overwhelming evidence that we could not escape in that case, uh, including that the uh, Mercedes that uh, was jacked, to use a colloquialism, um, was found in his apartment. There was a paper tag in the back of the Mercedes that uh, was phonied up, and it was in Julius Jones' handwriting. 
and the keys to the Mercedes were found in the cutlass that the state alleges Mr. Jordan and Julius um, shared. In, and there was uh, the victim of the Mercedes carjacking uh, positively, positively identified Julius Jones. So that was very problematic. And he was actually charged uh, in the same case at one point with that robbery and possession of a firearm. At later, it was separated from this case, right? Yeah, those were the bad old times. When, uh, when, when I came on board and then Robin came on board, because Malcolm was already there, at some point, the prosecutor assigned to the case um, uh, filed a motion to consolidate those two cases, the Mercedes carjacking, I'm going to call it, and the Mr. Howe carjacking and murder. And so they added counts four and five. While they were a week apart, and we objected, and Ms. McPhail wrote the response to their motion to consolidate and did a damn good job on it, Judge Bass um, consolidated those, and at that point, we were dead in the water, and um, there's no way of getting out of uh, being convicted in the Howell murder because, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, and juries can be admonished, they can be instructed, they can be talked to by the trial court, but it just doesn't work. If, if you have one or more, if you have another incident that's uh, similar to the uh, charge you're on trial for, then you've got a problem. And he was going to be on trial for both of those. So at some point, Sandy Elliott came on board and saw that, uh, that Bass had really screwed this up and severed those two cases and at some point tried to uh, use the um, Mercedes carjacking as other crime evidence under 404B to show that Julius had acted in conformity in the Howe murder. And uh, for some strange reason, even after consolidating these cases, he ruled that that couldn't come in as other crime evidence could not come in as other crimes evidence. He made the right decision. Well, that was lucky for him. That was very lucky. So throughout this whole trial, we were walking through a minefield. And it's not one of those mines that just takes your legs off. It's a mine that's nuclear. And we could not open the door to this uh, Norman uh, Cleveland County crimes or this carjacking, and we had to be very careful, so there were objections made constantly. It was a very stressful trial, and we successfully, to the most, for the most part, navigated uh, those evidentiary nuclear devices, but when he was convicted, those all came out in the second stage, and they just immediately sentenced him to death. Well, and that's why he was found guilty of the aggravator of uh, creating a risk of death to more than one person, and the probability exists that the defendant would commit criminal acts of violence that would constitute a continuing threat to society. I, the, the second one, yes. That, um, and, and it's more complicated than that, and we probably should talk about that uh, in another podcast. The aggravating factors... Um, did he create a risk of death to more than one person? The, the government's allegation was that he shot Mr. Howell in the head and then fired a shot at the children and the sister. 
I didn't, uh, I didn't agree with that, and I didn't think the evidence, well, uh, with regard to the second shot, um, that he fired a shot at the children uh, and the sister, the shot went directly into the dashboard. And I think under any scenario of uh, whomever committed this crime, um, that the firearm probably just went off uh, when grabbing the steering wheel. Now, that's just a guess on my, guess on my part. That's speculation. But that was my perception of it. The jury saw it another way. So let me hit on that for just a second. So let's say Mr. Jones didn't fire the shot. He was driving the vehicle. Felony murder rule was still going to get him, correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're involved in that conspiracy to commit robbery, robbery is an enumerated uh, offense that um, if you're engaged in a robbery and somebody dies, uh, no matter who it may be, you're liable for murder, and you're eligible for the death penalty. So in order to succeed in this case, we had to take Julius Jones away from that scene where the murder occurred on East Drive in Edmond on the night of July 28, 1999. Now, with all those crimes of dishonesty that we talked about, making false statements, thievery, those are all considered crimes of dishonesty, along with uh, just having felony convictions, pending cases, would any lawyer recommend their client to take the stand in that situation? Not any competent lawyer, no, absolutely not. It'd be suicide to do that. Now, it is ultimately his decision, as it is in any case, and so typically you have to go in front of the judge, and he advises the judge that you all have talked about it. Did that happen in this case? Yes, it had been discussed for weeks, for weeks with the client, and it was certainly discussed in front of Judge Bass um, when he uh, waived his right to testify. And so he made a knowing waiver in front of, front of a judge. Uh, that seemed to be another thing that the last defense says that he was, wasn't given an opportunity to speak. And that's, that's just typically not a true statement in any trial I've ever been a part of, prosecution or defense. They always ask, have you discussed this with your lawyer? Do you understand all of your rights? In that show, that is, um, and I'm not going to equivocate with my words here, that's a lie. It's not even a half-truth. It's not a misconception. It is a lie. So it seems like many of the complaints now from secondary or tertiary lawyers are strategic ones. Is that fair? Um, yeah, yeah, I would say that's fair. It's very fair. And, and the reason I say that is um, several courts of appeals have looked at this and said these weren't unreasonable decisions it could have backfired so that means it's not ineffective assistance correct you know as much as i have jumped on the sword and tried to help this man and uh, taken all the blame i can uh, no judge has ever agreed with me that it was ineffective and i wish they would have and to be clear, you wish they would have because you didn't want to see your client on death row. Of course not. Who would? All right, I think we'll end this episode here today, but stay tuned and come back for episode two.